Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Nail It Ortho podcast. And we are going back again. Yes, this is the return of the OITE slash board review series. If you are new to this podcast, this is a series that we started off at the end of last year going over just main high yield points for the yearly orthopedic in training exam or, you know, some people use this to study for their board exams. So we are back again. We left off talking about some basic science and we will continue with these episodes. And so if you all want to check out some of our more previous episodes, just scroll a little bit further back into our history. We already did episodes on trauma as well as sports and a majority of basic science. So we will start to finish these basic science episodes. And again, if this is your first time listening to this, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. If you are in residency, tell somebody else to go ahead and listen to this as well. Hopefully it helps them. And it's something you can do when you're listening or, or when you're driving you can listen to it while you drive so without further ado let's go ahead and hop back into some more oite slash board reviews you are now listening to nailed it the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors jay fitz and wendell cole now between what metals is galvanic corrosion the highest between uh that will be 316l stainless steel and cobalt chromium alloy those two are uh if i remember correctly i believe the uh stainless steel is the uh cathode and the cobalt chrome is the anode um but i'm pulling it up right now just so i don't give you guys uh wrong information here but uh i do believe how much we love uh how much we love basic science you can tell (laughs) yeah exactly stainless steel is a cathode cobalt chrome is the anode and that's what causes this risk high risk of galvanic uh corrosion between the two um so uh just know that if you are using those implants uh next to one another that that is what the uh, most likely cause of failure is going to be is that galvanic corrosion. Uh, and then you have something called self-passivation. What is that? So self-passivation is pretty much when you, you have formation of an adherent oxide coating on, on a metal or on an element. And, and what this does is it separates the metal from the solution, whatever solution that that metal may be in. And what that does is it decreases corrosion. So self-passivation is when these metals, they form an adherent oxide coating, which helps separate the metal from a solution and helps decrease corrosion. Um, so note that I remember hearing like one of our joints guys always talking about, yeah, what what metal self-passivates and this and that. And I was like, I don't know. Like, you know, it's kind of flew over my head. What the hell is but, that? Um, yeah, like, what are you talking about, man? Self does what? I don't know, but um, you know, self-preservation again is is when you have metal that um, that we have formation of inherent oxide coating, and that's going to help separate the metal from the solution and decrease the corrosion. So, we briefly talked about some a little bit earlier. I mean, we talked about the um, a difference between three sixteen L stainless steel and cobalt chromium having. Um, having galvanic corrosion be the highest between those two, but what are some of the the properties of titanium? 
the biggest thing is it has excellent biocompatibility. So uh, that is very nice in talking about like corrosion resistance. Um, it has uh, what you were just talking about, that self-passivation, um, the Young's modulus of elasticity and that stiffness is close to cortical bones. So the, the slope of that uh, uh, stress strain curve for titanium and cortical bone are uh, very similar. Um, the downside to it is it has poor wear resistance. So it's uh, titanium is very useful for things like medullary nails um, and some of the uh, plates that are used, but it's very rarely used in uh, cyclically loaded implants that articulate on one another. So you're not going to find a lot of titanium uh, total hips because it has a very poor wear resistance, whereas cobalt chrome and ceramic have a very good uh, wear, wear resistance. Um, and I guess I just kind of went into that next question without even thinking about <laughs> it, which, which was uh, what metal has better resistance to uh, corrosion? Oh, never mind. Uh, I, I was talking about wear resistance, not resistance to corrosion. So what metal has better resistance to corrosion? Uh, we know that they suck when you put them together, but which one is better overall in terms of corrosion, cobalt, chrome, or stainless steel? Yeah, it's going to be that cobalt chrome alloy. It's going to have better resistance to corrosion than stainless steel. And a lot of this stuff, you know, listening to this, listen to it multiple times. Hopefully we help you remember this. Um, but a lot of this is like, you just got to know it, you know, and the good thing is once you know it, you know it, you know, and then after that, it's just kind of refreshers throughout your years of taking exams and boards. So once you know it, you know it. Um, but there's this other substance or other type of uh, metal that I always saw, but never really saw a definition for it or like, you know, really uh, heard too much about it. But it, I always saw it show up on questions. But what is tantalum? Yeah, tantalum is a, a, a metal that is commonly used in uh, like augmentation during uh, total hip uh, arthroplasty. So if you need to, uh, like if they are missing a portion of the acetabulum or if they have a, a absence of bone in a certain area, you can use it uh, to augment cancellous defects. It's really just a transition metal. Um, kind of briefly looking up exactly what it is, is um, basically it's, uh, it has, uh, it's very highly corrosion resistant. So using it on the back surface of another implant is actually very favorable. So um, for those of you that really haven't uh seen it, used it, or understand exactly what I mean by augmenting total hips, the acetabular component doesn't always fit really nicely with a snug fit in the acetabulum. I mean, they can have bone defects from tumors. They can have bone defects from uh, severe uh, arthritis. Um, and you have to fill that defect in order to make sure that their hip center of rotation stays in the right spot. And so, um, 
what you do is you can backfill that with tantalum, and, but you the downside to it is you're going to have metal on metal uh, in that area. And by using tantalum, which is highly corrosion resistant, is very favorable and biocompatible for all of this stuff. So that's uh, a brief thing about tantalum. You won't ever be asked about the chemical composition of it or what it is truly used for. And I doubt that they will have questions on should you use a tantalum augment versus uh, cortical cancellous autograph versus cancellous chips, but just know that it's a transition metal used uh, for augmentations. And uh, when I initially thought of ceramics, I was like, oh, it's like a ceramic like in uh, like art class or yeah. uh, like, isn't that what they make toilet bowls out of? And I was like, I, I don't really understand what ceramic is or what ceramics are until I started really looking at what we truly use them for in arthroplasty. So give us a brief kind of overview of what are ceramics and what are some characteristics of ceramics? Yeah, so ceramics, you know, ceramic is, is a brittle and corrosion resistant material with elements that are linked together by covalent or ionic bonds. And many of these um, are oxides of a metallic element. Like we mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, aluminum oxide, you can also have zirconium oxide. And there, so there are different metal elements that are uh, that are that are linked together again by a covalent bond or an ionic bond. And a lot of them are oxides of a metallic element. And a lot of these are going to be very brittle. Uh, we had this, you know, this has the highest Young's modulus, so it's very stiff. It is not very tough. Um, we talked about kind of the toughness being the area underneath the entire curve a little bit earlier. So it's not a tough metal, but it is very stiff and uh, it's insoluble in it has the best wear characteristics when it's used with polyethylene and a low oxidation rate. And another thing about ceramics is it is very biocompatible. So big things to know about ceramics. Um, it's going to be, uh, it has very excellent uh, resistance, uh, corrosion resistance. Uh, it's going to be linked together by a covalent or an ionic bond. So many of these are going to be an oxide of a metallic element. It's very stiff. It's very brittle. And it's not very tough. It is insoluble and it has best wear characteristics with polyethylene and a low oxidation rate. So I just mentioned a couple of them, but what are what are some different types of ceramics? Just so you know, we all know and have at least seen this before that when we're not taking when we're taking an exam and they have all these different answer choices and you're like, oh, I thought it was a ceramic. And then they give you like 18 different subsets of ceramic. Um, that you've at least seen or heard them before. So what are some different types of ceramic? Yeah, the main one you're going to see in terms of like arthroplasty, I believe, is going to be that uh, inert alumina zirconia. That's what the nice like baby pink uh, femoral heads are made out of for the uh, total hips. And then um, this was something that I was also confused about where I, once I finally understood what ceramics are, I was like, oh, perfect. Total hips. Got it. Easy. Uh, and then I, then they're saying, oh yeah, ceramic can also be bone graft. And I was like, that makes zero sense, but there's a separate set of ceramics that are bioactive, not inert. They are degradable. And one of them is 
beta tricalcium phosphate hydroxyapatite. So tricalcium phosphate is a form of a ceramic uh, that is more bioactive. I also get zero payment from this company, uh, but there's a, another company called Serapedics that makes a new bone graft and they advertise it as a uh, ceramic bone graft that has a very uh, high stiffness. So um, it's very favorable, um, kind of like calcium phosphate, uh, this tricalcium phosphate that has uh, that's very stiff and it won't collapse when you uh, inject it underneath like a collapsed tibial plateau. It's the same idea with this um, new uh, Serapedics um, product too. And again, zero financial ties to it. It's one <laughs> company that my my uh, attendings in, in fellowship have uh, uh expressed interest in wanting to use and they, they find it interesting. And so I read a little bit about it. And so I figured I'd bring it up too. And it's, so it's, we don't always have to think of ceramics as the implants we use in total hips. It's also can be used as a very stiff, uh, bone graft substitute like tricalcium phosphate. Um, and then, uh, what are some of the materials that can be useful as a coating to help with implant strength and bone healing? Yeah, so you can use like calcium uh, calcium phosphates like hydroxyapatite. Uh, and a lot of times they will kind of plasma spray or spray this over the uh, over the implant. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about um, about implants and spraying and, and things of that sort. Uh, probably when we when we do our adult reconstruction um, talk, which will be a little while from now, or maybe it won't, who knows, but, uh, just to answer your question. So, you know, something that can be used as a coating to help with implant strength and bone healing is going to be calcium phosphate. So kind of that hydroxyapatite that can be plasma sprayed onto, um, to different metals. Uh, now what are, what are some characteristics of bioactive ceramics? And I know you kind of just spoke a little bit about it, but what are some characteristics of these bioactive ceramics like that beta tricalcium phosphate hydroxyapatite? Uh, the one thing is that they are degradable. And so um, what you want in a bone graft or bone graft substitute is something that can provide strength while your body either ingrows or ongrows onto the scaffold that it provides. And so something that is biodegradable our body can absorb it and use it locally and form bone uh, within its uh, the cavity that it leaves behind is good. And uh, the one thing about it is it is uh, osteoconductive, not osteoinductive uh, product. And so uh, I don't even know if we've gone over this yet, but um, we'll do a little bit here. But osteoconductive is something that um, provides a scaffold or a structure for your body to grow bone onto. And so it needs a large pore size. If the pores are too small, that's uh, too hard for the uh, osteoblast and osteoclast to um, kind of pave the way for new bone formation. But uh, an osteoinductive uh, sort of material induces the body to 
form bone and it um, can include things like BMPs and other growth factors to uh, uh, cause the bone growth. And then there's osteogenic bone graft, which is, uh, it has kind of everything. It has the cells to grow more bone. It has the structure to uh, form more bone and it has all the growth factors involved. So that was just a brief bone graft thing. If we haven't gone over it yet, there you go. Um, and we uh, now, so the old polyethylenes were essentially garbage. They, they were the limiting factor in the uh, total joints that were done years ago. But now we have this thing called ultra high molecular weight polyethylene. And if you pick up any orthopedic journal, there's always a uh, article that has UHMWPE <laughs> yeah. acronym somewhere in the abstract. What is that? Yeah. So this ultra high molecular weight polyethylene is going to be a long, uh, it's going to be a polymer of long carbon chains. And so the thing with these is the, the structure of the long chain, it's going to actually affect the properties of the substance itself. So longer linear um, chains are going to be stronger. And then when you crosslink, um, when you crosslink these these chains, that actually leads to a stronger and a stiffer construct. Um, but you know some of the other properties of um, ultra high molecular weight polyethylene is that it is also ductile. It is tough and it has viscoelastic properties. And if you do not remember those properties, we just talked about them. Um, not too long ago, either earlier this episode or the episode before this, and we talked about creep and load relaxation and hyper uh, hy hysteresis. So um, it has all those properties, and, and you can go back and, and listen to that and learn some more about those viscoelastic properties. Now, you know, kind of still touching a little bit on on this polyethylene. But this is always a point, either a point on a question or at least just something to know about when you're if when you're on joints or when you're thinking of doing any type of joints. What effect does gamma irradiation in air do to polyethylene? Yeah, gamma irradiation is used to sterilize the poly. And um, when you do that gamma radiation in air, it increases free radicals which in turn leads to premature oxidative polyethylene degradation and uh, essentially catastrophic failure of the polyethylene. So um, if you um, irradiate in, the, in a vacuum, so in the absence of air, um, you prevent this free radical formation, you prevent uh, the oxidative damage, and uh, things like uh, irradiation with nitrogen or argon can help minimize the free radicals, uh, as well as what I just talked about with the vacuum. And uh, adding things into it, like vitamin E, which is a natural antioxidant, um, can also take out some of those free radicals. And uh, what gamma irradiation does is it sterilizes, but also increases the polymer chain crosslinks, which improves the wear characteristics of the poly. And that's why that's why we do it is the wear characteristic improvement. Um, but you can't do it in air because then the free radicals actually cause the opposite of that. So uh, then we see uh, 
like our, our attendings or questions or something like that. We'll talk about, um, well, so we do the uh, radiation to the poly, but what is annealing and what does that mean? And what are the effects of the polyethylene? Uh, yeah. yeah. So when you anneal a substance, you heat it to below its melting point. You obviously don't heat it above its melting point or else it'll melt. Um, but you heat it to below its melting point and this helps decrease the free radicals. Uh, so, you, you know, you don't want free radical formation. And, and that's the thing that we're trying to uh, prevent against uh, when we, you know, just like you said, the, the vitamin E helps against it. Um, um, doing irradiation in a different type of gas like nitrogen or argon gas is going to help decrease that free radical formation. And so, so is annealing. So annealing, again, is going to be heating to below the melting point. Again, it, it, it obviously wouldn't make sense to be above the melting point because it'll melt, but that's not what annealing is. Now, um, are thinner or thicker polys, uh, polyethylene associated with wear particles? That'll be the thinner ones. So less than, I think the studies say less than six millimeters. You'd be hard pressed to find a, a implant or a total knee that uh, implants something uh, less than eight millimeters. Um, I usually put in a 10 to 12 millimeter poly. Uh, not, not really for this reason because of the wear particles, but I do know that that's a part of it is uh, because the thinner polys are, they're weaker. They, so they will be more associated with wear and the wear debris is where you get that uh, histiocytic and osteolytic response. And you see the uh, peri-implant uh, osteolysis and uh, kind of the thing that we are all concerned about that can then cause loosening and, and implant failure. So uh, kind of a, a different sort of uh, topic here, but what are some of the uh, polybiodegradable implants made out of? Yeah, when you think of these things, like um, some of these implants may be used in like, you know, sports like uh, arthroscopic surgery, um, where you may be using an implant to help um, fix something to it, like a rotator cuff or whatever it may be. But um, a lot of the, many of these um, kind of these polyethylene biodegradable implants are made of polylactic acid it's like a polylactic acid polymer. And so how these materials are, are broken down, at least this polylactic acid polymer is that it undergoes hydrolysis, which then if obviously if it's polylactic acid, uh, once it's hydrolyzed, you have lactic acid, which just ends up being excreted from the lungs as carbon dioxide. Um, so that's just one of the polymers. There are a bunch of other polymers. So other biodegradable polymers include polyglycolic acid, um, polydeoxanone and polyucoprolactone. So um, those are just some of the other uh, other products. But you know, so just know that again, they may ask about that polylactic acid polymer, and you know, and that's broken down. It breaking down the lactic acid, and it's excreted from the lungs as carbon dioxide. Now, what does the P MMA. What is that? What is that? Or I mean, we'll say it's bone cement. But what does that do? Uh, so its whole goal is um, essentially to create more friction with the bone and implant, or just the bone itself, depending on what you're using it for. I use it in tumor surgery more than 
most surgeons use it in their just daily practice. But what it does is it mechanically interlocks with the bone uh, and it reaches its ultimate strength within 24 hours. We typically in arthroplasty or whatever else, let it set for about 12 to 15 minutes because at that point it, it's reached a certain percentage of its ultimate strength that the uh, components won't fail. Um, but the mixing technique is very important and also unfortunately is the temperature of the room, which I had the unfortunate experience of <laughs> operating in a, a room. Unfortunately, the, uh, air conditioning went out in the room Ooh, and all of a sudden we were in rough. the 80s in the middle of a procedure and we mixed the cement and I went to cement the tibial component in went totally fine I went to cement the femoral component and that air that heat inside the OR and then the heat inside the bone it caused the cement to essentially harden as soon as I put it in. And so I had to completely take all of the cement out, open up a new bag and re-cement the, the mm. female. And it was horrible. <laughs> hey, but, and then that's uh, like all our time because we're all just sitting there waiting for it to, to dry. Yeah. It's like, oh man. <laughs> so that was that was really crappy. But uh all of that aside, um the it's actually better. Uh, so cement is more preferable to use in osteoporotic bone rather than not because that osteoporotic bone has the uh, kind of pores in the cancellous bone uh, large enough to let that cement permeate really far into it to create that interlock with the bone. And so uh, when you uh, have an osteoporotic patient, it's actually preferable with, with bone cement. But again, the mixing technique is important. You want to use vacuum, vacuum mixing. Um, there, uh, the uh, vacuum helps take out the uh, um, kind of air bubbles and you can move on from there. Yeah, stuff like... Damn, it's a lot of stuff to know <laughs> about no. the biomaterials. Like it's, it's like it's in depth, you know. It's just never ending. Like we just being you know, uh talking for a, a little bit here, and this is literally just biomaterials of um of basic science, you know. Um, the yeah, the problem with it is too is it's not like we're covering stuff that I haven't seen on an OIT before. Like yeah, like all of this stuff comes up in one form or another. And so it's not like we're just covering like, oh, this, this is the kind of zebras of the field. Like, no, there's been times on the OIT where I'm like, oh crap, what is this, the toughness or what is the stiffness or what is all of that stuff? So, whew. yeah, yeah, we got some more to go, you know, the next couple episodes we'll uh, get into some more, um, some more like kind of bone stuff and then we'll you know we'll, we'll talk about some perioperative things and then 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 we'll finally be done with basic science then we'll finally be the done one, orthopedics. <laughs> one more and then we're done all right well uh until next time everybody 
Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. And this is, again, our OITE review series. And we're getting back into the swing of things. So we'll release these a couple times a week or a couple times a month. And we'll continue to go through the through the different subjects. Now, we are working on a podcast companion book. So please stay tuned for that. More details will be upcoming in the next couple of months. But until next time, hit the subscribe button and let one person know about this. That would help a bunch as well as subscribe to the YouTube channel. We're trying to reach a thousand subscribers. So please go ahead and hit that subscribe button.